The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Color excites us more than any design element in the garden because it speaks emotionally to us. In this episode, we will dissect and learn how color speaks to us in our garden. Dr. Laura Dieter received her PhD in horticulture from the Ohio State University where she is currently a full-time professor of horticulture at Ohio State ATI Worcester, Ohio. She teaches a multitude of horticulture classes, including woody and herbaceous plant identification, landscape design, sustainable landscaping, plant health management, landscape construction, and ecology, to name a few. Twice awarded the OSU Alumni Award for Distinguished Teaching, the Perennial Plant Association's Teaching Award, the American Horticultural Society Teaching Award, Perennial Plant Association Service Award, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Ohio Landscape Association, and Professor of the Year from Instructure. She travels extensively across the country speaking on a variety of topics ranging from taxonomy and nomenclature to shade gardens, design, color, and specifically gardens and plants. At home, she gardens on her tenth of an acre with her hubby, four dogs, 100 pink plastic flamingos, and counts her 300 plus species of perennials as dear friends. This is episode 72. Understanding Easy Garden Color with Dr. Laura Dieter. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Laura, what is the color red? The color red, officially, is the wavelength of light evoked in a human observer with a wavelength of 630 to 750 nanometers. I'm sure that makes perfect sense to everybody now, doesn't it? They know exactly what red is. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm going to turn this around. How many times did you do vocabulary lists when you were in school? There's no telling. An innumerable number of times. Right. And were you ever allowed to define the word using the word? No. No. But if you look up in the dictionary, the color red, one of the definitions beyond the 630 to 750 nanometers, the definition of red is red. So let's think about that for a moment. How did you learn what the color red is? Probably observation, but it goes back even further than that. Some of us, you're, you're going to have kids, you've got cousins, you've got nephews, nieces, those sorts of things. You might see parents walking, toddlers are wrong. You learn what colors are by having an older person point to something and say, that is red or that is blue. 
that's how what we learn what our colors are. And we're making the assumption that little human being is seeing the same color that we are. We can't know for a fact that that's actually the case. We learn our colors by having somebody else tell us that this is that color. You want to mess with all the little kids? Tell all the little two-year-olds that the color red is actually called green. They'll never trust another human being in their entire life after that. (laughs) So we don't all see the wavelengths the same? Anybody who's not colorblind, so whose eyes work in what you might quote-unquote call the normal way, are going to see probably something very similar when we say something is red. But there's no guarantee that when I see something that is an Ohio State red, which is a deep, dark, fire engine sort of red, is going to be exactly what you see when you see that same color red. You might see it just because of the way your eyes work. You might see it just a little bit darker or a little bit lighter. Yet when I ask you to describe a color, most of us are going to say, well, that thing, whatever it is, is red. Then we have in our head what that word means to us. We can all say most fire trucks are a bright red color. Can I guarantee that the color that I see painted on that truck is exactly the same shade as the color that you're seeing painted on that truck? No. And therein lies some of the problem with us talking about color theory and color in our gardens is that what I see is not a guaranteed what somebody else sees. If you're working with clients, what they see. Right. And it's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it that way. You're the only one who sees that particular shade of red. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it said that color is the most desired and least understood in the garden. What are your thoughts? I think that's a totally accurate statement. Everybody wants the flowers for their color. We want seasonal color. We want year-round color. In Ohio, year-round color, that's, you know, from about end of February to about November-ish kind of depending upon how our seasons go. If you live in a zone seven, so roughly about Virginia South, you can usually have seasonal flowers almost every month of the year. Kind of depends upon how your seasons go. It's very difficult for us to walk into a garden center and say, I need colors for February, March, April, May, June, July. You very quickly become overwhelmed when you start thinking about it. I want something in flower on every day of the year. It's really easy to become overwhelmed and not even know where to think about things. It's very easy to get things flowering in June. Lots of stuff in Ohio flowers in June. Sometimes it's harder for us to think about more than just our mums for September and October. So I think if I want to get people thinking about color and how I can look at my garden and make it more colorful, one of the things I always tell people to start with is go out in your garden with a piece of paper and a pencil, make a list of the plants that are in your garden. You can do it on a spreadsheet if you can do it that way, but you just go out with a clipboard and a piece of paper and a pencil. You write down all the plants that are in your garden. Next to them, you can write down when they flower. That can be approximate because we understand that every year is a little bit different and something might flower a little bit earlier or a little bit later. Write down the months in general. That particular plant usually has flowers on it. What you'll discover is, hey, I've got a lot of things in June and July, and I've got one thing in May, and I've got two things in August, and I don't have anything for April. Now you can go to a garden center with some intent. I'm going to go to the garden center and I'm going to specifically look for things that are flowering in the months that I know I don't have anything in. That's one way to start thinking about how can I add things that are colorful in my garden in different seasons. Farther northern climates, seems like they have more intense colors in a shorter period of time. Is that due to the weather or the coolness? Whereas more southern climates, it's kind of spread out and maybe not as intense. 
I think that's a valid observation, and I think if you look at the plants that are native to northern climates, they have a shorter period of time in which to do their thing. They're going to have shorter periods of time for flowering, with the exception of our annuals, which tend to flower for us all season long. So things need to be, hey, we got to get everything done, and we got to get it going before the cold weather comes in and kills our flowers and kills our seeds, and we're dying back to the roots and that sort of thing. I think that's a valid observation between northern and southern gardens. You were going into selection of what seasons, you maybe you have holes in your color of that season. Are we looking for just annuals, or do we want to look at woody ornamentals? When I talk to people about color, usually what I try to say is, yes, we always are thinking the flowers, because the flowers are like the big flashy display that plants have, and that's what we always like looking at, those sorts of things. The reality is, particularly when it comes to our woody plants, if you add in bark interest, If we've got an exfoliating or a peeling sort of bark or a bark that's a slightly different color, you've got some trees that have kind of a cinnamon colored bark. You've got things like our oak leaf hydrangeas that have an exfoliating or a peeling colored bark. You've got things like your beeches that have that silvery gray, real smooth bark. That's interesting. It may not be the flashy color of a purple cone flower, but it's definitely interesting. It can improve the visibility of your garden in a time when the flash is not there. So think about our fruiting. Think about things like beautyberry, which has the really nice purple fruit on it. For us here, we have a lot of crab apples. Those can have a very interesting fruit. You can do winterberry hollies, which have a really nice either red or orange or yellow fruit in the fall. And that's fairly persistent for us until the birds start really running out of food to eat. And they come and they clean those off. We want to look at bark. We want to look at fruit. We want to look at the habit of the plant. If you get an old Japanese maple, they often have this kind of craggy, gnarly look. If you've got room on your property for a Kentucky coffee tree, they have this kind of really cool Halloween sort of silhouette going on with a large tree. We add those features of plants. We can reasonably, even here in the north, extend the interest in the garden to all 12 months Even though we're not saying, hey, this is really, really colorful, the flowers then become kind of the icing on the cake. What is held together is all the bones, the background, the woody plants of the garden that hold everything together. Annuals are great. I used to be a perennial snob. All I wanted to do was plant perennials because, oh, I can't have those annuals. Ew, bleh. Anybody can grow those. But what I've discovered is that annuals can form the backbone of the perennial garden Because those petunias, or insert whatever annual you want, impatience, petunias, geraniums, marigolds, whatever, those will do their little flowering thing all season long, and they're not going to change a whole lot. The petunia is always going to be petuniaing the entire summer long. Then you you get this little river of petunias, and you can bounce perennials off of it, and the petunia holds everything together during those times that, hey, this has come out of season, and we're still waiting for this other thing to come into season. Those can be kind of the backdrop of your summer garden, if that makes any sense. Yes, that petunia unifies it. Now, we can't grow petunias in the, or at least I haven't been able to grow petunias in the summer. Might be a foliage plant rather than an annual, something that's just going to be there and be consistent while your other perennials are going in and out of season. How do you know what color to pick? Maybe you can demystify the color wheel and give us a rundown on that. Sure. Probably everybody who went through school heard Roy G. Biv. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Roy G. Biv. Those are basically all of the colors. Color wheel takes all of those colors and puts them in a circle. That way you can start to see things like, and it'll usually have definitions on it. If you go to any art supply store, you should be able to buy one if you want to. But if you do a Google search for color wheel, you'll get a picture of it. 
you'll see things like analogous colors. And analogous colors are things that are next to each other on the color wheel. So if you think Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, if we start with orange, what's analogous to it? Red and yellow. Every color has two colors that are analogous. And analogous colors tend to work very well as color combinations. You can go to your local garden center and say, I would like red flowers and orange flowers because I know they're going to work. Or orange and yellow. Or blue and green. You know that those are pretty well going to work for you as far as color combinations. You will also see something called complementary, which is across from each other on the color wheel. So then you get blue and orange purple and yellow, red and green. Those tend to be a little bit more exciting color combinations, the analogous ones. I don't want to say they're dull. There's no such thing as a dull color combination. There's color combinations that maybe you don't personally like, but there's no such thing as a dull one. Complementary ones tend to be a little bit more exciting. So if you have a color wheel, or if you're at the garden center and you bring one up on your phone, you can start to see things that are complementary or analogous, you can purchase plants within that particular color scheme. And you can do that in for spring plants, you can do that for summer plants, you can do that for your fall plants, so that you've always got that color scheme going on in your garden. That's one way of thinking about it. I know a lot of us gardeners, we don't really like to purchase things that aren't plants. Going on the internet and downloading a color wheel to your phone is fantastic. But there's other ways. Maybe you're like complimentary analogous. Oh my gosh, those words are so big. I'll never remember them. I'll have to look them up every time. Go and get yourself some crayons. Steal them from your nephew if you have to. You know, get yourself some crayons and a piece of paper and put some colors on a piece of paper until you find color combinations that you like. Take that color combination to your garden center and start looking for plants that match those colors. You, know, you can find... Lots and lots of plants come in a wide variety of colors. How many different verbena colors are there? There's tons of them. There's light purples and dark purples and all kinds of things in between. So you can find something that matches the colors that you like. A lot of people have a sense of the colors they like. Kind of played with this idea that you could look at product boxes in the grocery store. So they put colors together there. Maybe even sports teams. They've got color combinations. Have you any thoughts on that? That goes back to exactly kind of what we've been talking about with the analogous and the complementary, or sometimes you hear that as warm colors versus cool colors, where things are a little bit more exciting. Warm colors tend to be very exciting. Cool colors tend to be calming. All of those products and sports teams, they all have groups of people that will come together for what are we going to do? What is going to make something pop in terms of the human eye? When we look at this box, what is that going to make us think or feel? We know colors impact our feelings. If you look at our warm colors, our reds, our yellows, our oranges, they're very exciting emotionally. So when you see that on a sports team, that's going to fire you up. If you look at your blues, your greens, your purples, they tend to be a little more calming. If you look at, say, for example, a lot of classrooms, they tend to be painted in blues and greens and things like that because we know that that helps keep people a little bit more calm. Yes, there's lots and lots of research on how colors impact human emotions and human behavior. In the course of a day from dawn to dusk, are you going to see that color change the way we perceive it? That is literally the best thing about gardening. That is the piece of a garden that almost all other art forms don't have. You go to a museum, you look at a piece of art, and they keep it under a certain lighting, and whether you go at 10 in the morning or at 5 in the afternoon, that piece of art is going to look exactly the same because they want to find the best lighting for us to look at that piece of artwork. 
But if you're in the garden, the lighting in the morning is vastly different from the lighting in the evening. If you can place your plant so that the light spotlights it, you will find different colors appear in your plants versus if the light is able to come from the back and that plant is backlit. You can get all kinds of different lighting. Not only does the light change from the course of one day to the next, it changes from one season to the next. Up here in the north, the fall lighting is just this wonderful, diffuse lighting that brings out the oranges and the reds and the yellows of all the fall colors that we have up here. And so if you can backlight those things, it actually gives you much more intense color than you might normally have simply by just looking at something with a spotlight on it. Give us an example of backlighting that you're talking about. You could do it with landscape lighting. We're going to shine the light on this. We're going to backlight that. But I'm talking about playing with our natural lighting. Watch as the light plays out across your house. How does that change? We all know that the southern side of the house is more warm than the northern side of the house. The eastern morning light is more diffuse than the western light. We all know that. What is not just the intensity of light, what is the shade of light, the quality of light? Officially the wavelengths if you want to get into that, but I'm not worried about that. What is that doing to how we perceive those colors? That's where we need to start paying a little bit more attention as a gardener. Backlight would be you've placed the plant so that when the sun comes across it, it's not shining directly on it. Your main viewpoint is from behind it. So the sun might be shining this way, and instead of you looking where the sun is shining, you're looking on the opposite side. The sun's coming through the plant. That would be an example of backlighting. Using the sun not as a spotlight, which is how most of us tend to think of it. Yeah, the plant becomes like stained glass where you're observing the light through the plant. That's a great analogy because the best view of the stained glass is with the sun on the opposite side of the human being. That's not an easy thing to do because most of us, where do we place our gardens? We put them right up in front of the house. It's a hard thing to do. My patio faces to the west, which makes it very difficult to use in the middle of the summertime because it's full blast and blazing sun. The garden is at the end of the yard, and so the sun comes through those plants, and that gives them a different quality than if I'm standing behind them and looking at the sun shining directly on them. Is there such thing when using color, less is more? I think that applies to everything in gardening. When you're thinking about color, you don't want your garden to look like 1970s hotel wallpaper that's just a mismatch of everything. You can think of it a couple ways. What are my favorite colors in a particular area? Okay, so I'm going to go buy some plants that are only those two or three colors. You can also think of it, what are the most prominent colors in nature during that season? In the north, in the spring, we tend to have a lot more blues and purples and whites. Summertime, we see a lot of yellows and more oranges and more reds. We can start working with that natural pattern if we want to do that. It makes it easy to find plants that are flowering naturally at that time in those particular colors. Don't want your garden to be every single color every single season. Pick two or three colors, buy a predominance of plants in those colors. If you want something that's a massive change, pick two or three different colors for the next season. The other way to think about it is, hey, my favorite colors are X, Y, and Z. I'm going to buy most of my plants for every single season in that. And this also boils down to kind of how our eyes work. If I want to look at something and really see it, I have to look directly at it. With peripheral vision, I can clearly see around me. If I wanted to see something that was on that side of my office, I would have to turn my head to look at it. If you think of your garden as a series of small vignettes, I can look at these four, five, six, seven plants, and I can see that I have these others, but I'm not really looking at them. To look at them, I have to physically turn my head or walk over in that direction, depending upon how big your garden is. 
that's another way to make sure that we've got something that looks nice right here. Move a little bit. We've got something else that looks nice right there with maybe something in between that kind of ties everything together, that unity that you were talking about a few minutes ago. It can be your foliage plants. It can be your annuals and all kinds of different things. You could actually, in each vignette, chain to a different color scheme. You could, exactly. Let's say we've got red, orange, yellow in one area, and that's going to be our little vignette, and the vast majority of plants are going to be that way. The next vignette, take one of those colors from that first one. Let's, let's do yellow. We're going to bring that other over, and we're going to do much more of a yellows and purples if we want to do that. The next vignette, we'll take one of those colors, and we can pick the yellow again if we want to. We can bring that over, and maybe we can do yellow and pink. We can do a lot of different things. The nice thing about landscape design is we've got this thing called repetition. It's a thing that holds the garden together. Like you were talking about with Unity, the foliage plants or things like that. That's that repetition that ties everything together. You did red, orange, yellow, and then blue, green, and purple, and then white and pink over here. You end up with that kind of jumbled mess of nothing necessarily is tied together. But if you bring one of those colors into the next season or to the next vignette, or to the next area of the garden, now you've got a reason that, hey, this is all part of the same garden. Repeating plants is a little more challenging because usually they're only flowering for a few weeks out of the season. That's, again, where that annual or that foliage plant can help tide things through while we're moving over into the next season. Repeating a plant or a color or a form can also be something. So if you have a daisy form over here and you repeat a daisy form over there, that can also be something that can help tie those areas together. Color tends to be a moment, whether that moment is a couple of weeks or a month or whatever. Do you think color gets too much emphasis in a garden, that there's more design elements in it that are really more important than color? That's a really good question. Yes and no. I think color is the reason that drives people into the garden. From that aspect, especially in our new gardeners, it's the thing that you see when you go to the garden center. It's the thing that you're drawn to when you go to a public garden and you see something across your way and you're like, wow, what is that? That's really colorful. So I think it's the thing that drives us because we're so drawn to color because human beings are so visually attuned to their world. But I think you're absolutely right in that it's kind of the icing on the cake, whereas that may be the thing that got you there. But once you're there, what are all the other things that we're doing to create a garden that works? Most people don't go to a garden and look around and go, huh, the balance and the line are just not right. But when they're not right, even people who are not garden designers will go, I don't really like this. And I, I don't know why, but I just don't really like this. It doesn't speak to me. All of those things combined, you talk about repetition, you talk about balance, you can talk about symmetry, you can talk about unity, harmony, whatever terms your textbook utilizes, line and form and texture, all those things, all of those things need to work together. But if you start with the thing that drew you there in the first place, you can at least start to create some visual emphasis in the garden and get people go, wow, that's really interesting. Then as you become a little bit more attuned to the other things that are happening in the garden, I think you can start creating better and better gardens as you gain a little bit more experience. Do you think green gets ignored as a color option in the garden? Yes because all of our plants almost are green. And what you don't realize is that there are more shades of green out there than almost any other color. Go get yourself a box of Crayola 64 crayons. That was like the big thing when I was a kid. It had the little sharpener in the back and everything. Yeah. Sort them all out to the different colors and you're going to find there's more green there than anything else. The next most common one is blue. That's the hardest one for us to get in the garden. But 
just about every plant has green in it. Green is great because it's such a common color. We can use it as a neutral backdrop for lots of things. So if you people like, oh, look at these dark purple or almost black flowers. Well, you put a black flower against black mulch and what do you have? The thing disappears. But you put that against green? Wow, that kind of stands out. Now I can really see what that flower looks like. That's a color we tend to ignore because all of our plants seem to have it. So I think you're absolutely right there. So green becomes a backdrop for other colors. That's one thing you can do to utilize that. Green, we tend to think of that as a more neutral color. Silver is another fairly neutral color as well, as is black in the garden. But we don't have a whole lot of true black. We have some real nice, really dark purples. Green, because it is so common, and because it literally goes with every plant, because almost every plant has green in it, we can use that as that neutral backdrop for separating colors that might clash. So if you're in a garden center and you're looking at two plants and you put them together and you go, oh, no, that's awful, ew. But you really, really like those plants. If you put something green in between those things, now they're playing with the color green and not with the two colors that clash. So yes, we can utilize green as a backdrop, as a neutral color, as a way to show off our very fine textured plants. We can do all sorts of things with the color green. Do we want to pick every color in our Crayola box and put it in front of green? I think if that's your particular garden style, you could, but I think you're better off if you start with determining what your favorite color combinations are. And you can go on the internet and you can look up garden designs and color combinations and you can say, oh, this color and that color go real well together. And even if plants that you would pick, because clearly the plants that I would pick here in Northeast Ohio and the plants that you're going to pick there in Georgia are totally different plants, we can find plants that have the similar colors to them. So if you say my favorite color scheme is red and blue, I might be choosing different red and blue plants here in the north than you're going to choose in the south, but we can still get that color combination. The green just adds to that. I'll give you an example. A lot of times I see pink and yellow. That seems to be the modern thing, pink and yellow. I personally think that pink and yellow right next to each other looks like my dog vomited in my garden. I don't have a problem with yellow. I don't have a problem with pink. I just don't like them together personally. If I happen to have plants that are those colors, I can put that green plant in between or a silver plant in between or any other neutral color in between, and now those plants are not a combination with themselves. You just kind of open up the space between them a little bit. Here's the thing with color, though. It's so personal. And I know when I work with my students who are brand new designers and they're like, oh, I really like these plants and these colors. And I go, what if your client doesn't? They have to think about what is the other person perceiving. It works this way with any art form. And that's what I think sometimes people don't understand. Garden design, landscape design is an art, just like sculpting or painting or anything else. The same rules of good art apply to good color theory and landscape design and all of those sorts of things. What you have to think is, I'm doing this in my garden, or if I'm going to a public garden, the designer has done this in that particular garden. They liked that, or they perceive the public likes that sort of thing. But I might do something in my garden, and the neighbor across the street who has to look at it goes, oh, why did she do that? Why do I have to look at that every single day? It's very, very personal. Everybody's going to have that color combination that they don't like. That's what you have to work with. That's why I say, figure out what colors you do like then go find plants in those colors, and then go find plants in those colors in different seasons. 
And if your listeners didn't catch that, I just gave all of your garden hortaholics the permission to go shopping every <laughs> single season for plants in their favorite colors for every Yay. season. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just not a one-time deal. <laughs> no, you got to make sure you got all the plants for that's all right, the seasons. That's right. What other color questions could I ask you that we hadn't covered? Oh, I think we covered a whole bunch of stuff. It's all boils down to, you know, you like what you like, and your gardeners, your listeners are going to like what they like. And if they don't know what they like, go get some crayons, go get some markers. You know, get out that old MS paint on your computer and... Put some circles in different colors in there and take that to the garden center and buy plants in those colors. And if you got a container that you're like, I don't know what plants would go in these containers, take the container shopping. Okay, is your container too big to take shopping? Take a picture of it with your phone. Take that shopping. A photographer would probably say that if you print something else, every printer is going to give you slightly different colors. But you know in your mind if that piece of paper or that picture on your phone is a little bit different. You know what you're seeing when you're looking at that container or that piece of garden art. I think we need to recognize that keeping things simple, finding your favorite colors, finding plants in different seasons in those colors, creating little vignettes in the garden. People can very easily, with a few small steps, get a very colorful garden almost year-round. And if you add the fruit and the bark, you can really go year-round. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? Oh, man. I wish they would branch out a bit more. Yes, the pun's totally intended there. (laughs) I don't know about where you are. I know in Northeast Ohio and the states that I've traveled in, I see a very similar style of foundation planting and what I call the hitchhiker's thumb, a row of plants across the front of the house. You get that little kind of circle at the corner of the house and you plop a river birch there or you plop a weeping cherry there or something like that. We've subscribed to that style of planting for so long and you see that around so much that people, even when they want to do something a little bit different, they're scared to do that. We plant the same palette of 10, 15, 20 plants and those plants are going to clearly change between your area of the country and my area of the country. Bet you you're going to see the same style of planting no matter where you go. That's really sad given the number of plants that are available in the nursery industry, the number of plants that could make wonderful ornamental plants to have the same 10, 15, or 20 plants planted over and over again just because that's what you see. I think we need to break out of that mold a little bit. Could you give us a quick example of what would be something different? Yeah, that's actually really easy to do. So where do most Americans spend their time? Now, I'm not talking about gardeners. Where do gardeners spend their time? They like to spend our time outside in the garden. But where do most other people spend a good portion of their time? Inside the house. Where is the garden? The garden's up against the house. So to see the garden, what do you have to do? You have to go to the window and look down. If you want to spend your time inside looking at the garden, where do you have to move the garden? You have to move the garden away from the house. We forget that the window that we've got, most of our houses have these nice bay windows and fancy decorations and things like that. That's a frame. Give yourself something on the opposite side of your yard to look at. Creating gardens that can enclose the property a bit would give us the opportunity to A, have curb appeal still because that garden is still there. Look at the garden from inside the house, which is where a lot of Americans are spending a lot of their time. I would really like to see more gardens moving away from the edges of the house. What garden myth would you like to bust today? Oh my gosh, there are so many of them. I see so many things online about weed control, and I was just arguing with somebody else online. Never argue online. Just let them do their thing. I see a lot of things online about vinegar and salt as a means of weed control. 
The challenge I have with those is, yes, both of those two chemicals can and will kill plants. I don't want to say that they're more or less safe than any chemical that you could buy for killing plants off a garden center shelf. Because if you look at salt, what did the Romans do to the crop fields of their enemies? They salted them. Because if you pour salt in a garden, yes, it will kill the weeds. And it might be, depending upon how much you use, two years before you can plant there again. Our organic ways of killing things are not necessarily more safe than our inorganic ways. That gets right there to one of the biggest myths. Organic is not always safe or better, and it's definitely not chemical-free. That salt is a chemical. We just opened up a couple of cans of worms right there, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can do an episode on just totally myth-busting. Hey, I've done that in class before bring up a whole bunch of garden myths and we get the class to look about what they've learned in terms of plant biology and does that work and doesn't it work? Crushed eggshells to cure your tomatoes blossom end rot? That does not work. Yes, will crushed eggshells add calcium to your soils? Yes, it will. Will it be available for your plants right then and there? Absolutely not because you could have all the calcium in the soil that your plants need more than what your plants need and it has absolutely nothing to do with what's in the soil. As far as blossom end rot is concerned, it has to do with transport of calcium in the plant. You can't solve that by adding calcium to the soil. What's your earliest garden memory? Oh, man. Wow. My parents always had a garden at the house, and they really liked being outside and being in the garden. My grandparents had rose bushes, and I have vague memories of that. But I remember being about somewhere in the 9 or 10, and I noticed for the first time that in the morning when my parents would go out and do the weeding and whatnot, that dewdrops had gathered in the center of what I now know are nasturtium leaves. I didn't know what the plant was at the time. All of these little round leaves had a little drop of dew right in the middle. You were very careful. You could pour a little dew drop off of every single leaf into a Dixie cup, and you'd end up with this much water from the plants. And I just thought that was the most wonderful thing was to drink a half a sip of water that took me an hour and a half to gather by pouring dew drops into a little Dixie cup. And I have really strong memories of that. It's just a thing that I did when I was not eight, nine, ten years old. <laughs> My parents must have thought I was the strangest child. But I let you drink it, didn't they? They did. Drank out of the hose at that time, too. So, you know, that's probably how we all survived. What led to you pursuing the horticultural profession? Wow, that's a totally roundabout story. When I went to college, I actually went to go and get into physics. I wanted to be a physicist. I took a calculus class. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of hard. And then I took a more advanced calculus class, and I realized very quickly that I was either going to be the worst physicist on the planet or I was going to need a new career. I always liked being outside. I switched and I ended up in landscape architecture because that sounded like it might be fun. And took a couple of quarters of classes in landscape architecture, and I finally went to my advisor and I said, look, this is landscape architecture. When do we get to go outside and do stuff? He laughed. And so I went, oh, no, I'm going to have to tell my parents I'm changing majors again. He said, why don't you think about horticulture? And I went, what's that? I had never in my entire life heard the word horticulture. Made an appointment with an advisor over in horticulture and realized that that is what I wanted to do. Took a plant identification class and I went, you can have a career in identifying plants? Really? Your job is to go to gardens and take pictures and teach other people how to pronounce plant names? I need to do that. That's what I want to do. Took me on as a graduate student. We used to have this bet where if he would ask me the identity of a plant and I knew it, then he would buy me a Diet Coke. And if I didn't know it, then I would have to buy him a Diet Coke. He knew where all the plants were on campus. So I bought a lot of Diet Coke from my <laughs> graduate advisor. <laughs> 
Was he your biggest influencer or, or was there somebody else? Well, aside from the fact that my parents spending a lot of time in the garden and my grandparents having roses and they like to do that, I very quickly realized that roses were way too much work. They required way too much tending. I like things that were a little more laid back in their life. I would say probably that, yes, my graduate advisor, and he taught a couple of my undergraduate classes as well, especially in plant identification. He was one of the biggest influences in my career. He did a lot to help me become a better professor, a better teacher, a better mentor. He was hands-off when he needed to be and hands-on when he needed to be. And I had a great experience both as an undergraduate and a graduate student because of him. And I hear a lot of horror stories with graduate students, and it's really unfortunate because I just had this amazing experience. And he had a way of looking at stuff. I was petrified to go and take my PhD qualifying exams. And I was like, how am I going to learn all this stuff? How am I going to study all this stuff? And he said, this is one of the rare times in your life where you're going to have the opportunity to learn as much as you possibly can about something that you say you love. That completely changed my outlook on studying for these exams. It didn't matter if I knew everything. It was great. He was truly wonderful. I've been retired for a while now. I still think about him and the impact that he's had on all of his graduate students. His name is Dr. Stephen Still. He studied under Mike Durr, and he and Alan Armitage are good friends, kind of in that same range in terms of the perennials. Alan kind of ended up in the south, and Steve was up in the north end of, end of things. And I think if you asked anybody about who were the gurus in perennial world, you'd get one of those two names, probably. What is your most valuable garden mistake? <laughs> Letting my husband plant morning glories. He has a thing for morning glories, and that plant is the bane of my gardening existence. I have two plants that are like that. One is a Ptelia, which is a rare plant that somebody gave me is doing a talk for them. I've had it in my garden for 20 years, and I can't get rid of it, and it's completely resistant to every chemical I've ever sprayed on it. Sometimes it'll turn a little white and then just keep growing. They're born pregnant. They seed themselves all over the place. You pull them out, you've made a thousand of them. It's a nightmare of a plant. I'm convinced now that this person hated me <laughs> by giving me this plant. That and morning glories. They're just everywhere. They're pretty. Good Lord. You just can't get rid of the things. What was that other plant's name? Ptelia, P-T-E-L-E-E-A, I, I think it is. Very closely related to jack-in-the-pulpits and arums and things like that. Has a really unusual flower with this long hooded spathe that has this little tail that comes out of it. It's a really cool kind of pinnately compound, a fingers leaf on it, but good Lord, is it everywhere. Tell us a funny garden story. Again, this kind of goes to aggressive plants. A former student, now friend, gave me a hosta, and she was really into hostas and had all kinds of these different hostas. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. She gave me this hosta, and I'm taking it out of the Ziploc bag that she gave it to me. And, and in with it were these two little, tiny little leaves. I was like, I don't know what this is. I probably shouldn't plant something that I don't know what it is, but I'll never learn about it if I don't grow it. So I put it in the garden. The hosta itself did fine. Hosta are pretty easy to grow for us here. I had no idea what these two little leaves were. Turns out they were a running species of campanula. I have this campanula. It's a beautiful campanula. I have to make sure that I'm in a very bad mood when I control it because you have to get it back down into a certain size or it'll take over your whole garden. So if you're in a good mood, you just go out and you're trying to gently tweak. No, just go in and dig it up and throw it on the compost pile. It has a wonderful flower and they're these great big, huge flowers and they press well. Bees really like them and occasionally you get hummingbirds coming to them. The best story about this plant, aside from the fact that it's taken over my entire life, is I was sitting in the garden, just actually spending a couple minutes enjoying the garden, and a hummingbird came out of this plant and buzzed me. And I was like, hey, go away. It had decided I was the most evil creature on the entire planet, kept buzzing and doing this little hummingbird squirky thing. Finally, I went into my house. 
was chased out of my own garden by a creature that is this big and weighs two ounces. <laughs> what have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding horticulture or gardening? That's the best thing about plants is they teach you something every day and there's always more to learn. There are 500,000 species of plants on the planet and so you can't even begin to possibly know it all. I teach an ecology class. Every year I learn something new about ecology. This last spring was the last iteration that I taught this class, and I had a couple students who were really interested in plants, and they said, we want to know what's really, really weird in the world of plants. So I had to go and look up all kinds of weird plants. What I discovered, and I cannot remember the name of this plant for the life of me, I'd have to go look it up again. There's a small group of plants that are nickel hyperaccumulators. So they only grow in these little, tiny, tiny little areas. They raw nickel out of the ground, so much so that their sap is a kind of a greenish-blue color. I'm looking at this one. I wonder if we can utilize this plant in any sort of way, because nickel would be a heavy metal. You wouldn't want that in the ground. Can we utilize that instead of mining? Can we make use of this plant and harvest the sap in somehow? And so it turns out that there actually is research being done in this sort of thing. Wow. Other things that I've learned relatively recently, that there are plants that can sense their environment so much that they can change their leaf shape to mimic another plant to help prevent predation. Wow. Yeah, and that's just mind-blowing that how does a plant that doesn't have a brain that we know of, certainly not a brain in the same way that we would think of a brain in terms of brains of mammals and stuff, that doesn't have the ability to feel a nervous system or a nervous system in the same way that we would think of a nervous system, how is it able to see what another plant's leaves look like and then adjust its own growth so that it looks like that plant. It's amazing. And these plants actually can see plastic plants and adjust their growth to mimic plastic plants. That's been researched? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's mind-blowing. It really is. It's absolutely mind-blowing. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have... In my garden, I have weeds. Here you go, gardeners. That's the thing. We want the perfect garden. We see pictures on the internet, you see pictures in the gardening magazines, you go to a public garden, maybe your local garden club has garden tours and things like that where people have agreed to open up their gardens. And you know what? Those people spend a lot of time making sure that when you show up, there's no weeds. There are weeds. And it's okay to have weeds. It's okay that your garden isn't perfect. So my garden has weeds. What have you learned that you're applying to your garden this year that you learned from last year? That's a really good question. I don't know if I thought about it that way. What have I learned that I've been that I've been applying this year? I think I've learned to tolerate and put up with these plants that I can't stand, morning glories and this patellia, just be like, all right, if I can't get rid of them, is there a way to try to contain them? With both plants, the answer is absolutely no, but I can at least then try to keep them out of areas where I would actually like to grow something else. What I would really like out of myself as a gardener would be to have the same passion for my garden that I have for learning about plants in general. And sometimes that's a hard thing. The actual application of the knowledge is sometimes a hard thing for me. I would like to have more garden passion. What are your future plans for your garden? Our front yard is quite tiny and we dug up all of the lawn and have replaced it with the garden. We actually dug up almost everything out of the garden last year. As soon as we start to get a little bit cooler weather, I'd like to kind of clean things up a little bit and get some things going again, kind of do a refresh of the garden. So I've got some pretty big plans for it. We'll just see if I have the energy to pull it off. What's your favorite plant this week? 
Oh, at least you phrased it that way. Because usually my answer to that is people are like, what's your favorite plant? And it's like whatever I'm standing in front of. <laughs> what's my favorite plant this week? Yesterday, I visited the Columbus campus for an all-day meeting. I got to wander around the campus a little bit. I ran into a few of the old trees that they were just big old trees when I was a student there ages ago. They're even bigger old trees right now. I'm going to have to tell you two of them. We'll do two. <laughs> and one of them right now are these big old sycamores that are just have these massive branches and this amazing white bark and these trunks that would take four or five people to hug them. Love those plants on campus. They're great old trees, so these massive old sycamores. Followed closely behind this are these two chestnut oaks on campus, and they're not as big. When I was a student <clears throat> years ago, these were plants that we learned at ages before that that they had caught fire, and they survived because the bark of a chestnut oak is about six or seven inches thick. All the leaves were killed, and those plants are still on campus. You would take probably two people to hug those trees, and so there are these big old chestnut oaks as well that I think are just these amazing plants. Would you like to brag on your students? I could always brag on my students. I program coordinate two different programs. One is the horticulture science program, which is our two plus two between the Worcester campus and the Columbus campus. So the kids start out at my campus, they transition down to Columbus for the bachelor's degrees. Then I also teach landscape horticulture, which is a two-year associate of applied science. So these are the kids who want to come, they get some college, and then go on out into the workforce. Most of the kids in the landscape program, they either want to own their own landscape company or they already do. They're kids they started when they were 12, push mowing lawns in their neighborhood. These kids come in, they've got some experience mowing lawns, and they want to become more professional. I tell you what, once they're done and they graduate, and I contact them a year or so later and invite them to come back to my class, they come in, they've got these massive brand new trucks, which means they're being successful. All of my students who own their own companies, I just love them so much because they're just these amazing entrepreneurs. They end up with these niche markets. Some of them specialize in tree care, and some of them specialize in maintenance, and some of them specialize in construction. Every time I have a conversation with them afterwards, they teach me something. That is the best part about being a professor. When that student comes back to you and they said, hey, I did this. Wow, you did? Tell me about that. Learn from them. That's the best part. I always learn from them. They're fantastic young people. When I hear people saying, oh, these young people today, I can tell you what, every young person I've ever worked with for the last 20 plus years has just wanted what they think is best for themselves, and they're all hardworking young adults. I just appreciate what they bring to my life and to the landscape industry. What do you see as the future of our industry? I think we're going to see a lot more automation because we're really struggling, at least in the landscape side of things. And I know turf and greenhouse are sort of the same way with a labor shortage. I don't think that that's going to get any better over the next years as the population in this country. We're seeing baby boom reductions in this country. So over COVID, people thought that we were going to start seeing more babies. No, we had actually an 8% birth rate drop in the last couple of years. That's not going to get any better. Certainly 18 years from now, we're going to have fewer students than we have right now. But that drives innovation. I'm starting to see companies show up where they've got GPS mowers rather than the zero-turn mowers. You have to have somebody sitting on the thing. Just teach the mower a pattern, and that's great for large commercial properties. Teach the mower the pattern, it does its thing. So now instead of a two-person crew, you've got one person there who can kind of keep an eye on the mower and do the string trimming and other cleanup and stuff that needs to be done while the mower can be off doing its own thing. We're seeing stuff that shows up in agriculture kind of trickle down, GPS-driven skid steers where you can set a level and it knows exactly how much to dig or how little to dig and those sorts of things. I think the labor shortage is going to drive some really amazing innovation. With a lot of states legalizing marijuana for medicinal purposes, that's going to be a cash crop. 
we're going to see greenhouse innovations that are eventually going to trickle down into the greenhouse industry. Nobody's going to do innovations for hosta. Yeah. But your hosta growers can take advantage of innovations that happen for larger crops. So I'm real excited about to see some of the equipment that happens. I love to play with the toys like that. Any final thoughts to close it out? Gardeners tend to be doers. They're always doing something in their garden. They say, I'm going to go enjoy my garden. And five minutes later, they're out weeding their garden again. And I know we're kind of coming down, at least for us, toward the end of the gardening season. What I would ask people who really want to be in the garden doing something is to enjoy the beauty that you've created. Because even if all you see is the weeds, you've really created this beautiful environment where you are caring for these creatures in the same way that we care for our children and for our pets. They're your babies. Appreciate what they're doing for you and not just seeing the ugliness that we always see in our own gardens. Laura, tell us how people may connect with you. Probably the easiest way to connect with me is via email. My email is Dieter, D-E-E-T-E-R dot seven at osu.edu. And if you can't remember that or you don't have a pen to write that down, if you go to OSU's website, you'll see a little link that says find people. Type my name in and I should come up. This has been Episode 72, Understanding Easy Garden Color by Dr. Laura Dieter. Thank you, Laura. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.